Uh, Please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 61. There are several times in the Bible when Jesus tells us in a very straightforward way exactly what he came here to do. Earlier this week, we read in Luke chapter 19 in our Bible reading plan. And verse 19, uh, or I'm sorry, verse 10 of chapter 19 is my favorite verse in all of the book of Luke because that's where Jesus simply tells us his job description. He simply says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. One of the first times that Jesus made a declaration like this is found in Luke chapter 4. Francesco read an extended portion of that passage earlier today. Uh, That was part of our New Testament reading. And that teaching of Jesus was incredibly significant for many reasons. I want you to just kind of get the image of what was going on there in your mind. Jesus had been traveling throughout the land of Judea and Galilee He'd been teaching in the synagogues, and then he returned for the first time back to his hometown of Nazareth. This is the first time he has gone back after becoming a nationwide sensation. He had been performing miracles, and he had been teaching, and now people are buzzing about who he is and what he has to say, and especially about the miraculous things that he was doing. And now he had the opportunity to speak to his own people of his own town, for the first time in their synagogue service. By the providence of God, Jesus, as he was invited in to speak, was handed the scroll from Isaiah chapter 61. That's our text today. And he looked out at the crowd of his fellow classmates and his former teachers and these people that he had grown up with. Perhaps his own uh, siblings were in that room that day. And they watched him during his childhood. They had watched him as he imitated his father in the carpentry workshop, and they had watched him grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, and now they are listening to Jesus read these powerful promises that are found in Isaiah chapter 61. And the specific words that he read were these, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now those words would have been well known by the people who were sitting there. Uh, They would not have been surprised in the least at these promises. Uh, Luke tells us what happens next. Jesus calmly and he methodically rolled up that scroll and he put it back where it went and then he sat down. And the place where he sat was known as the seat of Moses. In those days, the teacher was the only one in the room who would sit. Everyone else in the synagogue was supposed to stand in attention. So quite literally, the opposite of our posture today. Everyone was standing there listening. And as he sat down, it seems as though he was in no rush. He was in no hurry. Everyone was expecting the words that he read that day. Everyone knew those words that he read but no one anticipated what came out of his, now, his mouth next. Everything that he was about to say was completely unexpected. And there was quite literally, I believe, nothing that he could have said that would have been more shocking to them. He simply stated, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Think of it this way. That prophecy that Jesus was quoting was written in the first person. Nazareth was not the first time Jesus had spoken those words. Do you understand what I'm saying? I am saying that 700 years earlier, Jesus, this same person, spoke those words for the first time. 
the Spirit of the Sovereign God has anointed me to do these things. He had told Isaiah what his mission would be when he comes, and now he tells these people, this is the mission I am now currently fulfilling. I spoke these words long ago, and now I am fulfilling them in your presence. He was claiming to be the original speaker of these words. This immediately threw the room into a frenzy, and Jesus then taught them very briefly about the good news that he had come to proclaim. But instead of being received by these people, but instead of being accepted in his own hometown, he instead was chased out. Literally chased out of the room. And not just chased out of the building. They pursued him to the edge of a cliff where it was their intention to throw him to his death. These people that he had always loved... These people that he had always treated with kindness. These people to whom he came that day to preach the good news directed all of their hatred and bitterness and violence at the only person who could save them. Well, today we're going to consider the prophecy of Isaiah and see how Jesus did fulfill those promises. We're going to see how he is still fulfilling these promises to this very day and to people in this room. So listen carefully now as I read Isaiah's prophecy to you. Isaiah chapter 61. It reads, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise." to sprout up before all the nations. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we ask that today you would, through the power of your Spirit, impact us with the power of the Word. We thank you, God, that you are a powerful God, 
and that you are a great God, that you are a splendorous God, that you are a majestic God, yet you sent Jesus Christ to simple people, to lowly people, and you sent him to accomplish great things on our behalf. Today I plead with you, Lord, that you would help us to see your glory, that we might rejoice in you and worship you and give our entire lives to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This chapter is truly one of those distinguished, grandiose prophecies that we could easily camp out on for a very long time. There is so much here that we are really only going to scratch the surface this morning. So the way that we're going to approach is to simply answer the question, what is it that Jesus fulfilled in the hearing of the people of Nazareth that day? We're going to consider five answers to that question, and that is going to serve as our outline this morning. This is by no means going to be exhaustive, but if you understand these things that I'm about to tell you, you will understand the point of Isaiah chapter 61. First, what is it that Jesus came to fulfill in the hearing of the people of Nazareth that day? He brought liberty to the captives. The careful reader will notice that I am not going in chronological order through this passage. This is not the first mission that is mentioned by Isaiah or by Jesus. So why start here? Well, I start here because I believe that it is incredibly important for us to see something in this statement. It it is very simple. Jesus is not speaking literally here. Let me ask the question. During the ministry of Christ, which prisoners did he set free? Were there any prison breaks? Were there any stealth missions into a jail? Uh, When John the Baptist was imprisoned by Herod, did Jesus raise up a band of warriors and go to conquest to that building until they could break him out? Well, obviously the answer to all these questions is no. So what does it mean that he brought liberty to captives? Before I give you the answer, allow me to first suggest what I believe the original audience of Isaiah and the original audience of Jesus would have thought these words were to mean. After this prophecy was given, remember the people of God went into exile. And when they went into exile, they were in bondage. They were in captivity. So the promise of liberty would sound to them like a promise of freedom from the Babylonians. They were going to escape that form of oppression. In Jesus' day, when these people heard the words, they were almost certainly thinking that God was referencing that they were going to be taken out from under the thumb of the Roman government. They were thinking that the Messiah would come and overthrow the tyranny of Caesar. Now, this is precisely what so many of the crowds were hoping Jesus would do. They wanted him to come in on a war horse like a king, to set up an earthly kingdom, to take over their nation and to remove any foreign influence. They wanted to return to the days of David, where the kingdom was respected, and where it was free from any outside control. Well, Jesus did come up to to come and set people free. He did come to break the chains of captivity. He did, however, answer these promises in a way that they were not expecting. This is not about earthly bondage. They are regarding the spiritual bondage in which we have all found ourselves. Charles Wesley said it this way, He said, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. 
Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Great song. Romans 6 speaks of our life before Christ as being slaves to sin. Slaves don't take vacations. Slaves don't get to decide they're going to be free. We all expressed our sin differently, but we were all equally in bondage to the controlling power of sin in our life. You could not say no. Perhaps you found a way to stop one sin, and what you would do is simply turn to another. Some other form of rebellion against God would rise up and take its place. But when we are saved, those chains fall off and we are free. Romans 8.15, Paul joyously expresses that transformation this way. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You're not a slave anymore because of Jesus. What did Jesus come to do? He came to set captives free. And not just to set you free, as Romans chapter 8.15 says, He didn't come just to bring you out of a national control, a kingdom of darkness, and into the kingdom of his beloved son. He came to also adopt you into his own family. You're not just part of the kingdom, you are part of his family. He came to go on the offensive into enemy territory and retrieve his people. And Jesus promised that he would build his church and that even the gates of hell would not prevail against it. They could not hold him back. Jesus came to set the captives free. But that's not all that Jesus came to do. The second thing we'll see is that he also came to preach good news to the poor. Uh, Think about that statement for just a moment. Just consider that in your mind. Do you see anything strange about that phrase, to preach good news to the poor? You see, that sentence itself requires some indication of promise. Uh, Imagine just for a moment that you are living in Ukraine this war-torn nation that's experiencing currently great devastation. Imagine that you were living in a town that has now been bombed to oblivion. There is no one brave enough or crazy enough to bring food to you. So you are sitting there with your family, enemy soldiers on every side of the city, and you can't escape, and you are literally scrounging every day through the rubble to see if there's anything you can find that you could consume. So you consume nothing but the food that you dig out from under the stones. You have no home, you have no food, you have nothing. And there is no avenue that you can find to get yourself anything. And now imagine that a messenger came to you. They came running into town. They, they began screaming, I have good news for you. And they said, this is the good news. The Mets won the World Series. Now, people in this room might be celebrating, but if you're impoverished, if you're in their situation, I promise you, you would not care. There would be no part of you that would celebrate. In fact, you would get your hopes up when you hear there is good news, and because that promise has nothing of value to give you, you would say, that is terrible news to me. There is nothing good in that for me. Trust me, that news that you would think was good would turn out to you to be bitter instead. How would there be good news for them? Well, good news is, hey, there's a supply truck coming. There's food. They're right behind me. They're coming in just a minute. Or good news would be, hey, the war is over. Russia is retreating. They're going back to their own country. We are free. Do you see what I mean? Good news to the poor indicates 
that there is a promise. It is only good news if it in some way corrects their poverty. It's only good news if there is a promise that their needs are going to be met. Where there was lack, there now will be provision. Where there was need, there now is abundance. The people of Isaiah's day and the people of Jesus' day would have viewed this as a promise of national wealth. They wanted to return to the times of Solomon, where the kingdom was overflowing with riches and where they were exporting wealth all around the world. Verse 6 even tells us that uh, he came so that we might eat the wealth of nations. They would have read that and mentally began cashing their checks and imagining what they should add to their Amazon cart next. Yes, we are going to have the wealth of nations. But again, this promise is not literal in the sense that it is not about earthly poverty or wealth. It is a reference to the poverty of righteousness innate to our souls. Contrary to the prosperity gospel, Jesus did not come so that you might have a full bank account. He did not come so that your 401k would be impervious to the ebb and flow of the market. He did not come to give you earthly or monetary treasure. He came so that you might be rich toward God, as it says in Luke chapter 12. Christian, you are wealthier than any man that did not know Christ has ever been. You are wealthier than the wealthiest man who has ever lived. Bill Gates has nothing on you if you are in Christ. The treasure that he has given you is the treasure of heaven itself. It is so secure that it could never be stolen. It cannot even be quantified. It cannot lose its value. It is described by Peter as an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There is no bank with a better policy than that. And what more could the Lord give us? He has given us Jesus, the real treasure of heaven. So he can say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is good news for spiritually poor people. Jesus came that he might preach good news to the poor. And what else did Jesus come to do? He came to comfort those who mourn. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 2 says, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, this is one of those passages that we need to be very, very careful to examine. Because if we are not, then it's easy to miss the point of what is being stated. To mourn means to feel immense and intense, even bitter sadness. It means to feel in the very depths of your being pain of sorrow over something. And technically, you can mourn over anything. You can mourn over the loss of a job or over the loss of a pet or over the loss of a child, or over the loss of a dollar bill that blew out of your wallet and into the street. And you mourn over all of those things differently. What are we called to mourn over? It's very important that we understand here, this is not telling us that God is just happy for us to go around miserable all the time. He is not interested in us wallowing in a state of gloom all of the time. That is not the point that is being made. Here's where we need to dig a little deeper. Notice that there is a reason for the comfort that Jesus promises to bring. Verse 3 tells us that he will do this so that 
we will be called oaks of righteousness. That is a really helpful indicator of what kind of mourning these verses are talking about. This is not speaking to glorify people who have just had really hard lives. And that's important because liberation theology, which has cropped up and become very popular these days, liberation theology teaches that those people who suffer more are intrinsically and naturally closer to God. You know where that primarily comes from? Not the Bible. It comes from Mahatma Gandhi. That is not what the Bible teaches. Misery does not necessarily bring you closer to God. Mourning does not make you more righteous necessarily. It depends on what you are mourning about. It is not seeking to say that there is some kind of innate virtue in those who have more difficult lives. It is speaking about those who mourn over their unrighteousness. That is why he contrasts it with saying that he will come so that you will then be oaks of righteousness. You see this even more clearly when you understand that the Messiah would replace our ashes with a beautiful headdress. Well, what is he talking about? In the ancient Near East, the most common way to visually express that you were mourning over your own sinful actions was to clothe yourself in sackcloth and then to put dirty ashes on your head and on your face. We've already seen this imagery multiple times in the book of Isaiah this summer. Think about Jonah when he went to Nineveh and he began to preach that that there was judgment coming. What does the king do and encourage all in his kingdom to do? He tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, and he puts filthy ashes on his head. I don't know if you've ever had a bonfire and then you kind of poked around in it the day after, even just getting a little bit of those ashes on your hands, they spread everywhere. They get onto everything, and they smell very filthy, especially considering that the things that they were burning were, were not just kind of the clean wood that we find and dry out in our world today. They were burning everything in those fires. And they take that dirt and that filth and that, those ashes, and they put them on their heads to be an indicator that we are lowly before you. We no longer view ourselves as morally upright and pure. We recognize that we are filthy. So they would put these on their head and face, but the Lord speaks about his people and says, I am going to beautify those who mourn over their sin. I am going to take away those ashes. I'm going to cleanse my bride, and in place of those ashes, I will put a headdress, a beautiful headdress. And not only that, I'm going to take away that sackcloth and I'm going to clothe my church, my people, my kingdom with garments of praise. And he says he's going to give them a cleansing. He's going to wash away that filth. Think about those ashes in your hair. He says, I'm going to fill instead with the oil of gladness. I'm going to cleanse you. That's how they would take showers for their hair in those days. They did not have shampoo. They would put oil in their hair that would wash away any of the grime. And he says, I'm going to cleanse you so there is nothing of that morning left. In place of those ashes, I'm going to put a sign of royalty. So he places a headdress upon her, fit for a queen. Now, it's very possible that this is exactly what Paul is referencing when he says to Timothy, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord... Consider how this text in Isaiah chapter 61 compares with what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 4. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus came to bring comfort to those who mourn over their sin, 
not to those who mourn over just getting caught, and not to those who mourn over the loss of reputation, but for any who truly see the destructive nature of their sin and cry out to God and recognize that they have nothing of value in their own soul to give, that they are destitute. He comes and says that the depths of that depravity that you have experienced, I am going to comfort you and I am going to exalt you. Now before moving on, I want us to think about this on a practical level because it's a question that I think will roll around in our minds. Well, well, how long do I go about mourning before I start to experience this joy? How are we supposed to carry ourselves in our actual lives? Are, are we supposed to go about as those who are downcast and somber and solemn all the time? Are we supposed to look like the monks who always appeared like they hated their lives? No, of course not. Charles Spurgeon answers this question very well in a sermon called Beauty for Ashes. I love Charles Spurgeon's sermons. I have a whole bunch of them in my office. I read them. I like them. This is probably my favorite of all of them that I have ever read. And if you want to read it, you would be very blessed to find it. But I I encourage you, if you look up the sermon Beauty for Ashes, please make sure that you are not finding the book by the same title by the heretic Joyce Meyer. Uh, She stole that title and used it uh, as well. Please avoid her. Charles Spurgeon, however, said, quote, this is a long quote, so stick with me. He says, I would not discourage a mourner, no, but encourage him to seek after the garments of praise. Nevertheless, I must say that it is a very wretched thing for so many professors, meaning professing Christians, to go about the world grumbling at what they have and what they have not, murmuring at the dispensation of providence and at the labors of their brethren. They are more like wild crab trees than the Lord's fruit trees. Well may people say, if these are Christians, God save us from such Christianity. But when a man is contented, more than that, when he is happy under all circumstances, when his spirit does rejoice in God his Savior, in deep distress, when he can sing in the fires of affliction, when he can rejoice on the bed of sickness, when his shout of triumph grows louder as his conflict waxes more and more severe, and when he can utter the sweetest song of victory in his departing moments, then all who see such people call them trees of righteousness. They confess that they are the people of God. What is he getting at here? What is Isaiah getting at here? What did Jesus come to do? He said, yes, you need to feel the depths of your sin. You need to acknowledge that you are a wretched sinner, that you are a worm, as the song says. And then you must turn and experience the forgiveness of that, and you must delight in that, and you must be clothed in praise, that you would have nothing to do with this complaining spirit. But when you experience hardship, all you can do is give glory to God. That is what he says he will clothe you in. And then, when we live like that, the entire world would look at us and say, there's something different about that man. There is something different about that woman. There is something different about that teenager. They have something that I do not have. And Jesus came so that those who mourn over their sin will be comforted. And we can be comforted because Jesus fixes our sin problem. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross, I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Jesus came to comfort those who mourn. There's a fourth reason given in Isaiah 61 about why Jesus came. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Now, in order to understand what is being said, we need to first gain an understanding of the sabbatical system that God put in place for Israel. Uh, Leviticus chapter 25 teaches that there is a regular system of resting cycles that were to be observed as worship to the Lord. And you know about some of these things very well. For example, you know that the seventh day of each week was to be a rest for those who work. And perhaps you know that the seventh month of each year was to be a month of rest, which was uh, something that included many feasts and festivals. And every seventh year was to be a rest for the fields, where they were not supposed to plant anything. They were supposed to let the dirt be restored so that they might come back and they might plant again. Now, until there were modern farming methods, people thought this was crazy. And then it came to pass, they realized, oh, actually, this is very necessary for the nitrogen in the soil to be replenished. And here we see that they are told, leave your fields fallow for one year, every seventh year. And not only was it every week and every uh, seventh month of the year and every seventh year, he also says there's one more thing. There's one more year where there is to be a, an annual celebration. And this year is incredibly significant. This major event occurred every 50 years. Now, how, does, how do we get 50? Well, seven years times seven years is 49. And the very next one, that year is unique. That year is called the Jubilee. The term real estate does not mean the opposite of fake estate. Real estate means royal estate. That's what that word real means. This is a term that we carried over from England in most places around the world, and for all of history, the land of a particular place does not belong to the people, it belongs to the king. And that is why the king is allowed to charge you taxes to live there. But that isn't exactly how things are supposed to work in America. By the grace of God and our founding fathers uh, who put together our documents early on, they fought for the idea of individual ownership and personal property. I like that. But consider the nation of Israel. They had neither one of these systems. Both the notion of personal property, which we supposedly have here in the United States, and the idea of royal property, they both go out the window. Every 50th year, the people who had lost their land or sold their land, they were to receive it back. No strings attached. And the land did not belong to the king. The land did not belong to the one who purchased it. The land belonged to the Lord. And the image that that is supposed to give is to remind them, you don't get to decide the inheritance. I get to decide the inheritance of my people. However, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a man who lost his property. Now, there's a lot of ways that this can happen. Maybe he was like Abimelech who went through a very difficult time. You remember that was, uh, that was Naomi's husband in the book of Ruth. And they had this terrible event take place where there's a famine in the land. And so he can't grow any crops. And so he literally leaves the country to the only place that he can go to find food. Well, he comes back and eventually that property does end up in the family and remaining in the family. But that property was not overtaken by someone else. Why? Because they acknowledge this property does not belong to me. It belongs to the Lord. But imagine if somebody did come in. Somebody began squatting on the property. Somebody began farming the property. Somebody began taking over the property. Well, at the 50th year, it would have had to be returned to Naomi's family. Also, consider what if somebody had gotten in trouble with gambling, and they lost all of their money on the horses, and they, they had nothing left to make their payments. So what do they do? They, they go to their neighbor and say, look, Bob, I'm sorry. I'm, I have nothing left. I am in so much debt. Would you be willing to, to buy my property and take care of it? 
so that I don't go to jail. Well, oftentimes people would get into debt and they would sell themselves into indentured servitude for a seven-year cycle. And then they would clear their own name, their own debt. But what if you were in a position like that? Maybe it wasn't you that lost everything. Maybe it was your parents who lost everything in this case. And you would be waiting anxiously every single day thinking the clock is ticking The time is coming. There will be a day when they declare and rejoice and celebrate. Everything is to be returned. And what you would do is you would eagerly await that public declaration that the year of the Lord's favor has arrived because that meant that you were free to go back to your inheritance. When Jesus said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing, he was declaring that the year of the Lord's favor had arrived. Now, don't think of this as a calendar year. It was just an uh, an illustration designed to help us understand that there would be a time given where God's favor would be poured out. It was the beginning of the day when those who had lost everything could regain their inheritance. Think of it as Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 says, Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Do you see what he is saying? Brothers and sisters, Jesus came to inaugurate the day of the Lord's favor. He came to die on the cross in order to redeem us from our own failures to keep the law. He mediates this new and better covenant for his people. So what did he come to do? He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He came to say to you who had by all rights lost what you had in the beginning. Through Adam, we lost that relationship with God. And he says, I came to bring it back. I came to proclaim the Lord's favor. But there is one other promise that Jesus spoke in Isaiah's day that Jesus does not quote in Luke chapter 4. If you pay close attention, you will see that Jesus stops quoting Isaiah 61 right before it says these words, and the day of vengeance of our God. That's the fifth and final thing that we're going to focus on from Isaiah 61 today. And I'm not going to say a whole lot about this day of vengeance because it is the primary focus of the entire chapter, Isaiah 63. The only thing that I want you to notice here is that Jesus does not say that the day of vengeance was fulfilled in their hearing. That day was, uh, it was prophesied in Isaiah's day, it was promised, but it still has not yet come to pass. I mean, imagine if it did. Imagine if Jesus said, today is the day of the Lord's favor, and today is the day of vengeance. If that was true, all of those people that were chasing him to the edge of the cliff would have been destroyed. They would have been cast out of this life and into eternal judgment by the Father. And Jesus is not speaking of vengeance in the way that we often think of vengeance. He is speaking of the end of days. Jesus, speaking of these last days, in Luke chapter 21, verse 22 says, For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Those days, they are coming. They are on the horizon. There will come a day when the Lord will return in judgment against all of his enemies. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 through 17, gives us just a small glimpse of what this is going to look like. It says, Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the rocks, and caves, and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, 
And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? They would rather have a mountain fall on them than to have God even look at them. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have not been saved by his grace, I plead with you to come now. Come to the Lord now, because today is the day of the Lord's favor. Today is the day of salvation. There is no judgment to anyone who comes to him humbly, who comes to him and bows the knee and says, I am a sinner, I need your mercy. But when that day of vengeance comes, there is going to be no chance for anyone to have a last second change of heart. There's not going to be a moment where they can ask forgiveness. So before I pray today and before I say amen, your heart might stop beating. Before I conclude this time of preaching the word, the Lord may return. I call on you, if you don't know him, do not play games with God. Do not put off repentance any longer. Jesus came to preach good news to you. He came to set captives free. He came to bring good news to the poor and comfort to those who mourn and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he will come again one day in vengeance. If you don't know him, I pray that you will. And for those of us who do know him, this is good news. He has preached good news to us through this passage today, has he not? Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for this word that you have given to us through Isaiah. We thank you that it was Jesus who spoke these words even 700 years before the incarnation. We thank you that it was Jesus who preached these words in Nazareth that day. We thank you that it is Jesus who is now proclaiming those words to us today through the scripture. I pray that he would be magnified for all that he has done. Help us, Father, to glorify your Son who has accomplished great things for his people. I pray, God, that everyone in this room would walk away with an expanded view of the glory of Jesus Christ and for all that he has done through his ministry here on earth and through redeeming those who without him were hopeless. So, Father God, we pray that today we would be greatly blessed, that we would go forth and we would live for this Savior who came to live and die for us. And we pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.